Hi, I'm Weird Al Yankovic, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. If music is a religion, then Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee is one of its holy sites. Inside this former auto glass repair shop, a man named Sam Phillips invented rock and roll, discovered Elvis Presley, and brought us artists like B.B. King, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Roy Orbison, and Johnny Cash. This is where it all started. Sam opened his studio in 1950 because he wanted you to experience music and not just hear it. He wanted you to feel what he felt growing up around the blues and gospel as a sharecropper in Alabama. He wanted you to feel what he felt walking down Beale Street in Memphis. On today's episode of Prisoners of Rock and Roll, we're going to take you all the way back to the beginning and take a look at the legendary Sun Studios, the artist that came out of it, and the amazing music that gave us good old-fashioned American rock and roll. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Prisoners of Rock and Roll, episode number four. I am one of your three amazing hosts, Bruce Kramer. I'm, I'm, I'm with my fellow amazing host, Ryan McCusker. The amazing Ryan McCusker. And welcome back to the stage, Mr. Doug McCusker. It's nice to be back, folks. We missed you last week. It wasn't quite the same. Ryan and I uh, struggled trying to trying to keep up with you in our conversation about movie soundtracks. You guys held it in there. I really enjoyed it. And of course, I found myself talking throughout the whole podcast. There was a lot of people that were talking to me this week or emailing me, telling me, oh, we missed this movie or we missed that movie. Maybe we'll talk about that later in the show. Nice. Yeah, we'll see how much time we spend on this. We got a lot of ground to cover in this one, guys. I don't even know where to start. Once um, upon a time, there was a guy named Sam Phillips. So maybe even before we start diving into this, maybe we should just assume there's going to be somebody out there listening to us who has no idea what Sun Records is and everything else. It's, it is the label where rock and roll got started. The guy that owned it, Sam Phillips, and we'll talk plenty about him too, he discovered or recorded some of the most influential musicians to come out of early rock and roll music. So many of them. Elvis. Jerry Lee Lewis. Carl Perkins. Johnny Cash. Roy Orbison. B.B. King. Ike Turner. Ike Turner. If you discover just one of those guys, you're really famous. But the fact that this dude discovered all of them and then... They, he made this sound. Uh, he, he the, the rock and roll just came from this studio. Like I like to say in the episodes, the universe opened up, looked down at Sun Records, and they came and they saw and they made music. Maybe the first place to start is talking about Sam Phillips and who he was, and then maybe we can lead up to him founding Sun Records. So Sam Phillips was absolutely one of the most influential people in the history of music. He was in the first class in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So he was born in Florence, Alabama in 1923, the thriving metropolis. You ever been to Florence, Alabama? I have not. I I missed that one, too. It was a left turn to Albuquerque, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. right. And he grew up in in a very agricultural part of the country where people were out in the field singing gospel music. Blues was really big. And he said he grew up hearing sharecroppers singing and he just became fascinated with sound. It wasn't he became fascinated with music. It was sound that he became fascinated with. I mean, him and his family came from nothing. 
they were out there picking cotton. The rest of society that needed to make money at that time. As I'm sure most of the people that lived in the thriving metropolis of Florence, Alabama, probably didn't have a lot of money. No, and the only thing they they knew was to pick cotton. Well, the thing is, though, um, he worked for his father. And his father had crops and whatever it was. He didn't even own the land. He rented the land that he owned the farm on. So he worked He worked alongside with a lot of black. And uh, he would hear the um, the music that they would sing. And it really inspired him. And then at one point, he, he moves to Memphis. And he gets a job as a DJ and an engineer at a radio station. Yeah. Sam Phillips worked for a radio show at WERC, which was recorded on top of the Peabody Hotel, which is the famous hotel in memphis that has the ducks walking around into the pond me and doug were there but he was an mc for a socialite program back in probably the 30s and the 40s people couldn't go out the sharecroppers could go out to nightlife so they would have a radio show and they would have socialites come through and talk about their lives and what fabulous things were going on. And he was the MC introducing the talent. So was, the, it more, was it like a variety show or was no, it? No, it was more like an interview show. Oh, here comes the Van Traps. Very nice to meet you. <laughs> so it's like people who are listening to us right now living our best. Yes. We're living the Miller High Life. Yes. Everybody well, else is not. You can't be at McCuskers, but we are. So. But that's basically... Basically, yeah. what are we the radio show was. Right. Yeah, we are socialites now. Now we are. We're the only ones in the bar. Right. <laughs> Ryan Von McCusker is going to keep telling us his story about <laughs> you peasants out there. I guess as he was working there, he also decided he wanted to start a recording studio because he wanted to, he had this vision that he wanted to capture black music and mm. bring it to people because he said it just it made him feel a certain way and it was between the sharecropper music and any time he spent walking down Beale Street the home of the blues in Memphis I think he had a rumble in his mind and he just all this aggression that he felt and he wanted to put it in music when he was growing up the church that he went to there was a black church down the road from there so he was spent hours outside of that church of listening to music he never heard before so he had a big exposure from working with his father and everybody alongside with him and going to that church and he even said he never really saw any color when he was growing up you know his father died when he was about 16 years old so he had to drop out of school so he said he wanted to be a defense attorney and then his dad died and he dropped out of school when he was 16 and then go run the, the field that his dad ran and so he had a lot of pressure on him growing up. So he knew how to micromanage things and run a business. So that was his first taste of that. So he becomes fascinated with sound. He wants to capture that sound. And in 1949, he signs a lease for an old automobile glass repair shop. Yeah. And opened the Memphis Recording Studio. And his motto was, we record anything, anywhere, anytime. He really wanted to give black artists an opportunity to record their music, the music he grew up with. And he basically had it that you could just stop by and for a couple bucks, you can record whatever you wanted. Mm. Yeah. He also had recording on wheels. He would go to churches and recorded churches or bombispas or uh, anything that you wanted to record at a different location besides being a recorded studio. So I think he ran into the problem where even though it cost a couple bucks to record a couple songs, a lot of people in Memphis in the 40s, 
didn't have a couple bucks yeah. no. to spend. So he, you're right. He would just go around and recording everything. And I, I wrote down he recorded holiday greetings. And I, you could hear some of this stuff. There's still It's still around. Mm. You can find it. Yeah. Weddings, funerals. He said he would hide the microphones and like funerals. And sprays of flowers when they were like, hey, don't you really <laughs> want to remember Aunt Bethel's funeral? And he said something like he would hide it like behind like stacks of Bibles. Or he said one time he was like hiding behind a curtain in the funeral home recording everything. <laughs> He's like, I'll give him and he that. said it was like anything to make yeah. some money that he could put back into that recording studio. Imagine all the stuff that nobody ever heard that he recorded. Yeah, the shit that nobody I'm, cares about. I'm looking at like dark side of life. Like, yeah. Right. And and back then when you would record everything, he didn't have a record label. So I guess the way things worked back then was he would record somebody and then he would sell the distribution rights to that song to another record label. Yeah. Like Chess Records, you see them, they come up a lot. Sure, the, sure. The very famous blues label in Chicago. And they said at some of these times when he was recording all this stuff, they said he was working 20 hours a day. Yeah. And that's where he had a nervous breakdown. Well, it wasn't the first ber- nervous he had breakdown. A cu- he, he had a couple. That at he- a very young age. He, at very young age, had mental problems. He was shocked treatment. Yeah, 21 years old. Yeah, he was institutionalized and got, got shock treatment. Voluntarily. Yeah. He got that voluntarily. Go on YouTube and look for interviews with Sam Phillips. He's got a twitch in his eye. You can see that he's a little out there. He's very animated. And I guess you can't really be a successful musician or somebody in that industry without a little... We talked about the Beach Boys and and some of their... You got to be loony to make hits. Yeah. There's a fine line between crazy and genius. Yeah. He walked... He walked the line with that. <laughs> Sorry, that was fucking terrible. Um, and one of the early people that he would record that then they would sell the record rights to were like was BB King mm-hmm. was one of them. So he was some, the first one. Was one of the first like famous people that mm-hmm. he ever recorded. And maybe once we kind of run through this, we we start diving into some of the artists. He also recorded Howlin' Wolf, which will I have a whole bunch of stuff. Which on. he says that's his favorite artist that he ever recorded. Yeah, he more said than that Elvis, was the most, more than Jerry. He said. That Howlin' Wolf was the most talented person. He said it was his biggest discovery. He said he was 40 years old when he was yeah, discovered. Yeah, he was in his 40s. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll say that again to get the emphasis through. The guy who discovered Elvis said that Howlin' Wolf was his biggest uh, discovery. Well, you listen to some of those Howlin' Wolf songs. Yeah. and Well, they had a really big connection because Howlin' Wolf he suffered from a mental breakdown also when he was in the army he got discharged from the army he was a wacko so Howlin' Wolf I think is one of those dudes that like if you're not into music you probably don't know who he is so why don't we, why don't we talk about Howlin' Wolf a little bit and we, maybe we can dive back into Sam Phillips so Howlin' Wolf his real name was Chester Burnett he was born in 1910 he died in 1976 coming up in the 30s would tour around the South playing music anywhere he could. And he played with Robert Johnson, like wow. the legendary blues guy, that the father of the blues, the guy that mm. invented the blues, which was, that's just really, really cool. They said also then that he kind of crossed paths with Sam Phillips because he was a traveling musician. And Ike Turner was one of Sam Phillips's like talent scouts yeah. and heard Helen Wolf and brought him in. And, and Sam hadn't formed Sun Records yet. So he recorded Helen Wolf and then licensed most of his stuff to Chess Records. Mick Jagger saw Helen Wolf play and said that it inspired him to want to make blues music and was always one of the Stones' most influential acts. 
I think Mick just wanted to be black. I, he probably did. I mean, he moved. They loved. The, they loved the blues. And, uh, absolutely. So, one of the new things we're going to do in the Prisoners of Rock and Roll is we now have upgraded our technology, and we're going to play some clips of some songs. Ooh. We're not famous enough yet that anybody's going to sue us, so we think we can get away <laughs> with this. Let me play thirty seconds yeah, of it, go for and it. this is Smokestack Lightning from Helen Wolf. Listen to that snare drum. Sam Phillips said that he didn't care about how musicians sounded. He cared more about how the music made you feel. I'm not like a huge, huge blues guy. Something about that guy's voice and his music... It like I feel it in my fucking soul. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's so he fresh. Is, it's he so is fresh. Blues. If he was friends with Robert Johnson, then he also sold his soul. To yeah, the devil. yeah, right. You can find a lot of stuff on YouTube of him, like old. He's just sitting down playing music, and he's talking about the blues, and he's talking about like what it means to have the blues. Because he like, lived them. Yeah, because he was like, "You ain't got nothing. You got the blues. No, yeah. your woman gets mad at you. You got the." And it was like, <laughs> but you, you're like. Man, you can just feel that. It is yeah. so cool. He was a big dude. He was like six. Oh, six. huge. Yeah. And they said when he would play, he was like a complete maniac. They said he would yeah. get down on all fours and put like a handkerchief in the back of his pants so it looked like a tail. And he would walk around like, I'm the wolf. And he would howl. <laughs> scared the shit out of everybody. And like, you can find some videos, some YouTube videos of him too. He's running all over the stage. He's dancing when he's playing. Is he smoking crack? It's just it's awesome. <laughs> he was like possessed and he could just feel this music and it's and he's one of those guys that he's just kind of he's fallen through the cracks of music. Yeah. He, he apparently was like a no nonsense guy when it came down to the business of of his music. That's what he did. Yeah, and they said he also was one of the few black artists in that time that that had money. He made money and sure. he was successful. They said like when he moved he eventually signed a record deal with Chess, mm-hmm. and when he moved to Chicago, they said he drove his own car, sure, his own and truck. he had like $4,000 yeah. in his pocket, which is a ton, a ton of money, money. Yeah. for that era and for a black musician. Yeah. Sure. Can you see how Wolf, you know, working a day job? No. No, maybe <laughs> didn't have to. Digging have... ditches. Yeah. You know, I could see him being a, a grave digger. Yeah. Just, but, uh, if, if you're into music, man, do you just dive yeah. into some of his stuff? It's just really, really cool. But at the same time, like by the time he got into music, or got discovered anyway, as we'll say, he was in his 40s, man. He was like 45, 44, he was a 45. Yeah, he's been through it all already. He's like, like he, now it's time to get down. He was playing songs and, you know, yeah. on the porch with his buddies. And, he, you yeah. know, he was the original. Yeah. You know, God knows who heard him and then ripped off of him sure. to make other music. And connecting him and B.B. King and Muddy Waters, and then it goes into the Stones and how it's all, it's it's all, all connected. connected. It's, it's all connected. All connected. But it's all rock and roll. All that blue stuff that Zeppelin and all those guys, that all came out of somebody like Howlin' Wolf. If you want to watch a good movie about Howlin' Wolf, there's a movie called Cadillac Records, and they portray him very good in that movie. They do. I so, haven't seen that, but I'll have to check it uh, out. It's, oh, not- it's about chess records. Yeah. Beyonce's in it. It's it's not a great movie at all, but that Ryan's right. The Howling Wolf part is fantastic. When they portrayed him, it's fantastic. Hmm. So back to Sam Phillips. So he's he's making records. He's licensing them to other uh, record labels. And they said in those years he would record somebody. 
He would do all the engineering. Then he would drive around the country trying to sell that artist to a record label. Said he was working 20 hours a week. They said one year he put 60,000 miles on his car. <laughs> I was, you know, I'm sure that... That, yeah. I'm sure that did a great job for his family life. He, oh. he had kids. He was married. Yeah. And there's some stuff about his assistant and whether or not he had an affair with her. We'll, we'll get an, to her. Yeah. I was going to say, she was an older woman. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to Marion. And then he started having all these mental breakdowns. Oh, I've been there. Like relapsing? Yeah. He was institutionalized a couple times because he just he was working so goddamn yeah. much. And then I guess at some point in the early 50s, he realizes, like, what the hell am I doing this for? The real money is in distributing sure. the stuff, the, the music, instead of just recording it. So then he created Sun Records. Well, he created a record label. Mm -hmm. And there was like one that was very short-lived, and then eventually he started Sun Records. Yeah, you could go in to Sun Records, record one side for $3, record two sides for $4. And you could just walk in and record anything at your own. But, you know, to be on the Sun Record label, he had to like you. He discovered all of his acts. He had to see something special in you to be on his Sun label. Or Marion had to see something special Marian in you had, as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, she was a little bit more together than he well, was. Yeah. Maybe let's just finish about the building. And then maybe we should talk about Marion a little bit. And mm -hmm. then we can start diving into some of the music if that's mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, yeah. So Sun Records wound up. They were around for like 16 years and they did. 226 singles so they got they just yeah. take off and they get like incredibly prolific and there's a lot of very famous people that came out of sun records and there's a lot of people that have just been completely forgotten to history some of which we're going to talk about today and there's some really cool stuff sam winds up selling the record label in 1969 for a million bucks a million dollars a million dollars which is still a, a yeah it's 1969 it's a, right he takes that money and he invests in the Holiday Inn, which is a regional <laughs> hotel chain that started in Memphis that was just about to go nationwide. Wow. And he was an early investor into that, made him incredibly wealthy. The building, and, and Sam eventually, like, he, he opened another studio down the street. Then they opened one in Nashville. The building in Memphis, it used to be an automotive glass repair shop. So it wasn't, you know, they took all the tin ceiling out. They put acoustic panels in. Sure. But Sam said that there were points like he would just walk around the room clapping his hands yeah, there's, to hear the reverb. And you guys, we've all yeah, been, the we, three of us all have been, all been there. There's um, there's actually sweet spots in that room. Like, that room should never have been a recording studio. It's not set up that way. Yeah. It has arches and nooks and crannies. and It's a weird shape because it's all yeah. kind of like a like a corner. Yeah. Like, the front of it is... is it's 18 by 33. It's, it's it's a small, weird, yeah. Yeah, it's a weird little. It should be everything but a recording studio. So yeah, I think it was. And yeah. There's there's marks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you tour it, there's marks on the floor where you can you should stand yeah. to get your best guitar sound yeah. and everything else. Yeah, Sam Phillips did a lot of work though when he went into the studio. He put a lot of work and time in putting the tiles on the ceiling to soundproof it. Um, yeah. To stripping the floors to make it wood. So his assistant, Marion Keisker. Keisker. Keisker, mm -hmm. I'm pronouncing that right? Yep. Was his, she was like a radio person and also was his assistant in the whole thing. And Sam Phillips always said she was one of the most educated people in Tennessee and said she's the only subscriber to New Yorker magazine to ever live in Memphis. But she was, a, <laughs> she was an officer in the Air Force. She was a, a radio host. And she had the same vision that he did. And oh, she yeah. plays a really important part when we start talking about Elvis. Yeah. Oh, she had the woman's point of view. Yeah. So then the building, when he sells it, it kind of falls into disrepair, and the building became an auto parts store. It became a barbershop. 
it became a store for scuba equipment in <laughs> scuba. In, in Memphis, in Memphis. Tennessee. <laughs> Memphis, Tennessee. Because a lot of scuba dives. Can't imagine around. why that didn't didn't yeah. stick around. And it, the building really became kind of lost. Yeah. And they said then it, they turned it back into a recording studio in '85, where they did a project called the Class of '55, mm-hmm. which is a reunion of the Million Dollar Quartet which we will talk about. But it was Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Carl Perkins. So they reopened the building for that in 85. And then in 87, they opened it up for tours. And it's been like that ever since. You can still go there. It's a really cool place if you're into music. I think we, all three of us have been yeah. there. Yeah. And they still use it as a yeah. recording studio. U2 recovered Rattle and Hum yeah. in that studio. Yeah. I think the drum set that is there is... Larry is, Mullins. Yeah, it's U2's... Drum, drum set, set from that yeah it's still there and you can sit behind it yeah i sat behind and took a lot of pictures yeah we were sharing I, we were sharing pictures yeah. of our our visits to yeah. sun records the last tour, today the tour was going on we we're in sun records and everybody's back is turned so ryan's there and i'm like pointing at the drums i'm like sit down sit down i was like i take a picture of it. he's getting on the road i'm like dude just do it i think they didn't notice you sit down the drum set and ryan's just like yeah this is like the most magical place I've ever been in my life so. Yeah, so if you tour there, there's like, here's the X where Elvis stood and recorded, and you can pick up his microphone and, and all that stuff. Yeah, I got some great pictures with uh, Elvis's microphone doing Elvis stance. It's a really great tour to see. You know, I've been in the 16th Chapel, and I've been to many places of history, and I'm telling you, I've never been anywhere that I've had the feeling of walking into Sun Records. It was a religious feeling. I've been in St. Paul's Cathedral, and I felt more in Memphis in Sun Records. Yeah. Well, it's like I was saying in the intro, if, if music is a religion, that's one of the holy places. I, I nerded out really hard when I went there, too. I was oh, like, man, this is, this is where it all started. Without uh, this building, without this place, there's no music that we listen to. They had to kick me and Doug out because we were straggling yeah. behind, yeah. taking as much pictures as we can. Just nerding yeah. out. Like, I got one more question, but I got one more question. Really, really cool. Yeah. All right. So we're going to talk about the, the beginning of rock and roll. Let's talk about once upon a time when rock and roll began. Before rock and roll, you had the blues. You had the blues. You had country. You had Sinatra. You had Bing Crosby. They were putting out all the hits at the time. You know, Tutti Frutti just came out. And you had uh, rockabilly music, which is kind of... Bridging the gap between country western and rock and roll music. Yeah. You had rhythm and blues, which was not the R and B that we think of today. Mm-hmm. No. It was more boogie woogie kinda kinda sounding stuff. And then there was just a, a chance thing, like like Ryan said, the heavens opened up and the first rock and roll song came about. What was the name of that song? Rocket eighty eight. There's so, got to be something behind that behind that song. I have the story behind that song. Oh, right so. on. Everybody was telling Sam, you know, you should go to Nashville. Sam really felt something about Memphis, like, you know, Beale Street, what we'll get into and all that. He didn't want to do what Nashville was doing. He wanted to do his own thing. The, the, the black music that he heard, that he, that he had an envision of this would bring people together. These stories and these songs that all these guys are singing – this needs to be shared. I'm sure he saw some green in it, too. Yeah, and that's the stuff that Sam Phillips talked about. You feel it when you hear it. it it's true. No, I just wanted to say one more thing. When we were um B.B. King's place, we, I, I struck up a conversation with the waitress, the bartender, and I asked her what it was like when B.B. King died in, in on Beatle Street. You know, they, they had his casket on Beatle Street. 
and they were like it was like almost like a new year's day kind of vibe and they were rolling them down the street and there's all i was like you'll never see that ever again for any person and she's like you know you're right yeah bb king was one of a kind and sam saw that in him sam sam was like this guy's got it and he was you know ear friendly he could put him on the radio it was there was no black or white thing with bb it was just the blues and you know his guitar playing was so so different than everything sam phillips like i gotta get this guy on on record and there's not a whole lot of blues musicians that have made that jump in the mainstream that people know who they are. If you're into music, he was just the the, the pinnacle of blues guitar. I'd seen him in concert, and he was so good. It was maybe a couple years before he died. And he was playing up until like his 80s, sure. right? He was still, he would do like a diabetes commercial yeah, yeah. in the morning, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then he would go play. He was still doing like over 100 shows a year or something in his, up until he died. But he's, he was still relevant. Like everybody knows who B.B. King is, granted, like commercials and this and that. You definitely know his sound. Yeah. And that, like, I think my first exposure to BB King was Rattling Hum. You know, when he, he yeah. toured with you too. You know, and he did When Love Comes to Town. Yeah. You know, that was my first experience, oh. and it, and it was just thank you, Tom McCusker, by the way. <laughs> it was life changing, I guess. When I saw BB, yeah. he did When Love Comes to Town, mm-hmm. and he's sitting here, he's like, "You want to hear a song my friend Bono wrote for me?" <laughs> so the first rock and roll song, Rocket Eighty Eight. Sit, sit down, kids. Let me tell you a story. <laughs> a lot of people think that Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets was the first rock and roll song. It's pretty close. That song was recorded in 1954. I'm talking about something that happened in 1951. A couple famous people that are in this song. So the first rock and roll song was actually a song called Rocket 88 by Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats. And let's just kind of set the stage a little bit and let's play 30 seconds of it and then we can get into kind of telling the story of how this song came about. You've heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make But let me introduce my new Rocket 88 Yes, it's straight, just one way Everybody likes my Rocket 88 Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along Man, that song is swinging couple things of how that song started so jackie brenston and his delta cats was a band that ike turner was actually the leader of yeah and they said that ike turner that the band was playing a gig in greenville mississippi and as they were driving back to uh, back home they saw a whole bunch of cars on the side of a road outside of a juke joint and they pulled over and they went in and bb king was playing on the stage and ike turner and bb king had been friends so B.B. King's like, hey, man, what's going on? Why don't you guys all come on up and play with me? They played one song, and I, according to Ike Turner, he said they blew it away. Um, I'm sure they did. Yeah. And B.B. King was like, man, you guys got to make a record. You guys got to record something. And Ike Turner said, okay, cool. We have no idea how to do that. We don't know what it means to record music. And B.B. King said, well, I got a guy. You know, I'll put you in contact with Sam Phillips. Oh. So Sam Phillips, they, they, they hook up. They connect, and the band decides they're going to drive up to Memphis to record, 
and they're driving up, and they said that they had like seven guys piled in one car. They had the upright base wrapped up in a tarp on the roof of the car. And as they were driving, they started just shooting the shit, saying like, oh, man, who could see like the most like they're talking about the cars that are passing on the road. And they say, hey, man, I bet you I could see more Fords than you. Oh, yeah. Well, I bet you I could see more Chevrolets. And somebody goes, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to see an Oldsmobile Rocket 88. Yeah. Which is the first muscle car. Ike was like, you're not going to see many Rocket 88s. Yeah. And then they start driving and they're like, well, wait, we're driving up to record. What are we going to record? <laughs> yeah. And then they just start kind of passing lyrics around and this conversation they were having about the cars becomes into a song. Yeah. Like, oh, they're talking well, in the lyric that we just heard. He says, like, you know, jalopies and Rocket 88. And like, mm. What rhymes with that? What rhymes with that? Yeah. And then when they get to Sun Records, they said they got pulled over by the cops when they were driving there. Hard yeah. to believe. And, Hard right, believe. right, right. In Memphis? No. Right. And then when they pull up outside, they're unloading all their gear, and somebody had dropped the guitar amp, and it cracked. And while Ike Turner and the band was like, well, we just blew yeah. our shot, yeah. Sam Phillips, being the sound guy he is, went and grabbed a bunch of wadded up paper. Some people say it was some napkins from a diner next door. Some people say it was a brown paper bag that he had, and he stuffed it into the amp. And it created this fuzzy, distorted sound that became really famous. And if you hear that sound, if you go back and listen to that song, and then you go listen to I Can't Get No Satisfaction by The Stones, it's the same sound. The same buzz. It, or yeah. uh, You Really Got Me by The Kinks, it's the same sound. Did they do the same thing? They, 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 they modeled it after that song. They busted it open the speaker. And I don't know if they did that. I don't know if maybe <laughs> I'm they sure did the Stones had a lot tuning. more fun breaking their amplifier than, uh, right. than they did. Right. They got a better story. But when you were playing that, I was sitting here listening with my, my hands over my headphones so I could hear that buzz. That, the fuzz. The fuzz. It's totally noticeable. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it was just an accident that they just stumbled upon. So that you'll say that as the first distortion ever used in a song mm -hmm. absolutely man i remember my friend chris he would do that as a kid bring broken speakers and then put newspaper in them and then some way hook a guitar up to it and it'd yeah. be like this you get, amplifier you get that fam that vibration because yeah. the speaker would just move around you had to get it to stop i remember him doing that also chris heidler smart guy it was just just another example of sam phillips just being a master of <laughs> just being in, just, manipulating sound yeah. He he just he, he just heard sound everywhere. He was just I yeah. think it was because of all the shock therapy he had. <laughs> so we talked about BB King and Howlin' Wolf, and we talked about Rocket eighty eight. Um, what other famous musicians you guys want to chat about? Uh, does he have any more left? I don't. I, I, there might be a couple. You know, Sam Phillips found a lot of acts acts you probably never even heard of. There was this one group called the Prisoneries. They were a group of inmates. Tennessee Governor Frank Lament and Warden James Edwards gave an okay to Sun to record their records. Could you imagine Sam Phillips coming in and saying, hey, you guys in the jail cell, you make a great sound. Why don't we make a record? Well, have you he heard, heard them, them the first time? Like, I don't know how he heard them for the first time. I, th I think if I remember when we were in Memphis, I think they were doing like a radio show from the prison because they would do that also for entertainment they have like talent shows through these prisons and i think he might have heard them through one of those radio shows and i think that's what introduced them to him he had them record the song called walking in the rain it's a really great song bruce do you have it over i there? do yeah let's, let's hear listen a little bit a couple seconds of it just walking in Torture in my 
Man, that's some great, like, lazy Sunday afternoon, hammock laying, iced tea drinking. The lead singer of that group was Johnny Prague. He was in, in jail for rape and murder. <laughs> great guy. He was. He was in jail for rape and murder, and he could sing. So is that our... Prisoners of Rock and Roll Scumbag of the week. week. He's number one Scumbag of the Week. I think there's quite a few of them in this. Yeah, this week. We, we're gonna have a couple. <laughs> but um. it was him and four other guys, and it was like a doo wop kind of thing. I don't know how Sam got the warden to let them out, but those guys work cheap. I think they were still locked up. Like as they were growing, they're like, "Oh, we're famous on the outside." Oh yeah, you know. Well, they, but they brought them in like in a chain gang. Yeah. Like they walked in the Sun Studio with yeah, like a yeah, chain I remember gang. That. I remember that story. You know, yeah. and they worked for barbecue. They were like, yeah. happy as shit. You yeah, know? they're out of the walls. I think. Some of them, it helped them get out of prison. So the prisoners were formed when Johnny Bragg, who was convicted of six charges of rape, teamed up with two guys who were each doing 99-year sentences for murder, one dude that was serving time for larceny, and one guy who was doing one for one to five for manslaughter. Yeah, those two guys got out probably. But that song, Just Walking in the Rain, sold a quarter of a million copies. The original gangster. Yeah. Original gangster recordings. The lead guy, his sentence was commuted in 1956. Are they in the Rock and Roll of Fame? Probably. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> They're in the Shitbag Hall of Fame. A um, couple of them looks like a couple of them got out of jail and they went back into jail. Sure. Uh, one guy died of a drug overdose. One guy died in a car accident. In Sounds the 70s. like Rock and Roll to me. Yeah, the lead singer died in 2004. Yeah, but they were one of the first recordings at Sun Records. Amazing how Sam Phillips saw something and, and he ran with it. He That just showed how inventive he was getting to find an act that had a sound. It didn't matter who they were. He was going to record them. And it's such a weird, yeah. You're in Memphis. You have all this potential talent to be pulling from, and that's where you, you get some, some of the talent from. Really, it's, it's really interesting. You got any other kind of one-off rare people that you want to talk about? The original... The first person to record at the Record Memphis Recording Studios was John London. He was a saxophone player. Mm-hmm. He um, did instrumentals. Historically, he did something that nobody ever did, was record for Sun Records. He was the first one. He was the first one. And it was just like a, a, a saxophone? Yes. Like, single? Yep. Just another guy that... Has... Is it a popular song or is it just like... Come, no, just it, was just, it was, yeah. guy just fell through the, through yeah. the cracks, you know, but it was recorded. He's the first one. One of the first things that Sam Phillips recorded for his son's studios was Joe Hill Lewis. He was called the Bebop Boy. He was a one-man band. He played bass drum with his foot. He played guitar. He played harmonica. And he put his sound out. He has such a punk rock way to yeah. him. He so, has such an aggression that Sam Phillips was l- looking for. I remember when we were in Memphis and we we're just hanging out later at night and uh, listening to kind of researching the things that we found out. And we listened to some of his stuff. And we were both just blown away by just the sound this guy got just from one one guy. He sounded like he had like five guys in the band and it was one dude. His real name was Lester Hill, but they started calling him Joe Hill Lewis after Joe Lewis the boxer after he got in a fight oh, with well, somebody as oh, a yeah. kid. And he got largely forgotten about. He died really young. He was actually, he couldn't make money as a musician, so he did like home repairs mm-hmm. and he cut his thumb and it wound up getting tetanus and he died from it. Um, I do have, I have one of his songs. You want to yeah, play yeah, a little bit of it? So there's a song called She May Be Yours. This is all him, right? So he's playing all of this. All of this by himself. Amazing. Can you match? The aggression. Yeah. 
Sam Phillips was like, I got to put this down. Sam Phillips found them in some juke joint. I think he found them on Beale Street. Definitely. Yeah, he found Definitely. them on Beale Street. Yeah, so I'd, I'd never heard of this dude at all until you brought him until yeah. Ryan until you brought him up and there wasn't much there was one album and then uh he's on a a like the great 60 greatest singles out of Sun Records yeah. or something and then I saw some pictures of him sitting behind a bass drum with a guitar in his mm-hmm. lap and a harmonica in his mouth and yeah. you're like wow that's that's really cool yeah there's still a bar on Beale Street uh the place with with the stilts is right down the street from BB Kings and they still have a picture of him hanging up in this place because that's where he was discovered it's it's just an amazing i got this big smile on my face just thinking about what this guy accomplished just by himself and he didn't have to pay anybody else so it must have been really easy to gig like you know but again it's something that's forgotten about yeah and that's probably the the coolest thing about doing this episode has been finding some music Mm -hmm. that i'd never heard of before even when i started looking into like you can find a spotify list or an album on Sun Records best rockabilly song, Sun Records best blues, yeah. Sun Records best jump blues. And I just started finding all these nuggets of these songs that have been largely forgotten. They're like, this is really cool. Some stuff I tagged for like on my favorites for Spotify that I will I will go back and listen to it again. Mm-hmm. It was really it was really cool. This has been a, a history lesson. Yeah. Well one thing I'm sure Ryan will make another playlist of this episode, which will like which is a great idea by the no, way. No, I mean me and Bruce were working on it early this week. You'll see it out. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So another, in addition to having some of this great music, we are going to start sharing a playlist with every episode so you guys can experience some of the stuff. You want to go back and listen to it. We'll kind of guide you through it if you want to explore some of the stuff. And we got another cool thing we're going to introduce in the show later, too, that we're going to, we're excited to get to. We'll get to it. Yeah. Another, we're not going to talk about it yet. We have a special treat for all you guys that are guys and gals out there listening to us. All you uh, listening to the socialites, the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So who else do we want to talk about? My favorite Sun Records artist, the first time I heard it, I was probably about 12 years old, Jerry Lee Lewis. The f- Jerry Lee. The first time I heard Great Balls of Fire, it changed my world. I listened to it yesterday, and it still gets me going. The killer. It, it, there's, there's a reason why they call him that. There's, it was so dangerous. Like you sit there and you listen to like Great Balls of Fire or Breathless or any other song. High whole School lot of shaking going whole on. A lot of shaking going on. Imagine being in the 50s and that coming on. It was so dangerous. You want to talk about punk rock? Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, yeah. Is the the godfather, the great, great, great godfather of punk rock music Definitely. and the attitude of punk rock. Is he a very likable guy? He's also a scumbag. He's week. a scumbag. He, he is our yeah, he, prisoners of rock and roll, roll shitbag. So my, my notes, my the first bullet point of my notes here says, He's an asshole. Absolutely. But goddamn, can <laughs> yeah. he play piano? Yeah, but it's dude, amazing. God gift, like, God just gave him this gift. I, I'll keep on going on for hours, but can't say my favorite Sun Records. He was like a session musician for he Sun, was. and yeah. he's on a whole lot of hits. And, and they said he wanted to start doing his own stuff. And he was doing, I think, a, a whole lot of shaking going on because that's a cover. Mm-hmm. And somebody was like, this is a rock and roll label, son. You can't do no country music. And mm. so he amped it up. Yeah. yeah. And it's uh, and also fun fact, the uh, in Great Balls of Fire, the, the woo that he does. Yeah. Um, that is where Ric Flair got his. Oh, really? Got his inspiration. <laughs> That's where that came from. It's a Jerry Lee Lewis thing. I didn't know that. I, everybody's going to know a couple, couple of those songs. Rock music at that time. Yeah. Just didn't have piano in it. Other no. than like, yeah. I couldn't think of another musician that was famous in rock and roll music with the piano, other than Fats Domino. So why don't we just play thirty seconds a whole lot of shaking going on and. 
And that's a cover song. Yeah. And I think, Is it? I think a lot of these, couple of these songs are covers that... Everybody covered everybody back then. Yeah, but he, he like... Made he, it his own. He pulled yeah. it forward so far, yeah. and nobody has ever sounded like him. I don't think anybody who recorded afterwards doesn't know it's a, a cover. I, I didn't know until know I... Cover. Yeah, until that's I was, amazing. Until I was doing the notes. That, what a... What a way to come out and, and make an album. There's a whole lot of shaking going on. Back in the 50s, that was so like... That's so seductive. So seductive. Yeah. You're thinking about like cars going back. Or like, oh, no. what's going on? Oh, a whole lot of shaking's going on. Yeah. And, yeah. and you, Ryan, you mentioned before about just like the heaven just open up and things just go that way. It just like... Yeah. It right just, place, like, the yeah, right this time. Dude is, he's kind of tooling around. He's a session musician with all these famous people around him. And he takes a swing at doing something different, and it just blows up. But besides piano playing, his voice is unique. You know, even though that has had the uh, country and the boogie woogie, he it, created something that only he could have done. And he was really religious, Jerry Lee Lewis. He's going to be a preacher. His, he was, his cousin is... Jimmy Swagger, right? Yeah. Well, I didn't know that Jerry... That, that was his cousin. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. They were both in Bible school together. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. They were both yeah. going to be preachers. So yeah. They said that when he was writing his music, he felt really dirty. He felt he the was devil writing, on him. He was writing yeah. such like sexual... Even, yeah. even later in life, he was like, I'm going to hell, boy. Yeah. yeah. He was like, I, I did the devil's work. Yeah, he did. And, yeah. and even as I just said that, there was something... Everything about him in that is sexual. The way he's dancing and moving yeah. and he's banging on... Like, you know he's just... Just possessed. He's yeah. he is to piano as Chuck Berry is to the guitar. You know, there's a story that Chuck Berry would not follow Jerry Lee, and Jerry Lee was like, "All right, all right, you want to follow the killer? You can follow the killer." So he goes out there in front of Chuck Berry and puts the piano on fire, like a blaze. He gets lighter fluid. And blazes up the is that, piano. Is that like the first time he yeah. did it? That was yeah. like that the, was the first to time show he up did Chuck it. Berry. He, it was he the only first, did it a couple of times. He did this, and then he was like, "This was the stupidest thing I ever did." And the guy was like, "No, this is the most brilliant thing you ever did." And he walked off stage, and he's like, "File that." I never knew that that was the story of where that yeah. came from. That's like uh, Pete Townsend smashing yeah. all the amplifiers, smashing yeah. the guitars, and everything. Yeah. Well, uh, he he was on the Steve Allen show, and it's like you know Steve Allen always said like is the best guest he ever. Like Elvis was on Steve Allen, and this and that. But um, you can find on YouTube of Jerry Lee on Steve Allen, and in the background, you know Jerry Lee stands up and kicks the chair out and everything like that, and you see behind him. Steve Allen, you see this chair just flying to the other side, like behind him, like like right out of wrestling. Woo! <laughs> it was just madness. The music just brought, made him do it. Yeah, make, music make people do crazy things, man. You know, and that's rock and roll. That is rock that's, and roll. Bring down the um, house. Rock and roll did not make him marry his cousin. No, Jerry and, that, Lee. and that's why he's he's uh, he's got uh, well, right. He's he's an asshole for a lot no, of a lot reasons. Of and he was talking to just, any. Music journalist, yeah, critic. Yeah. I wish I would have saw him in concert. A few of my friends saw him a few years ago, and the pictures were amazing. 
of him. Like he came out, did like three songs. And he's like, I'm the killer. I'm out of here. Where was that at? <laughs> it was in Vegas. Oh, Brent that's right. I remember. Oh man. Yeah. I would have loved it. It was see, awesome. The Stray Cats played that show too. Yeah. Like, oh, can you imagine that show? That'd be really cats cool seeing the Stray Cats. And, and Jerry Lee. I could do three songs and I'm out. Thank you for $150. Good night. $150. like $150. No. And he's still, he's still yeah, alive. Right? He's like, yeah. he's in his mid 80s now. Yeah. And the IRS is still following yeah. him around. Yeah. yeah. That's why he only did three songs. He got to get, get out of Dodge. He defected to Ireland. He, did left, he? he left the country and went to Ireland to do VATAC tax evasion. He was really blowing up. He was on tour in England yeah. and uh, was given a press conference or something. And they, the only reporter yeah. that showed up to talk about him found out that he married his 13-year-old cousin. Yeah. cousin. And then he came home and nobody went on the Yeah, no, and that just kind of the bottom fell out. Yeah, they, they blacklist them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, rightfully so. I'm sure down in, like, down south, and that was just the way it happens. Like, people married cousins, but in the north, and civilized people, as people are socialites, whatever you want to call them, that wasn't acceptable. Yeah, yeah and it's no, not. I mean, you're a celebrity, you know, and next thing you know, you're, you think, baby, you you're think baby. mom and dad want yeah. their 14-year-old daughter to listen to his songs and think they're going to marry? Right. Yeah. He's probably already considered dangerous for all of the, the way he moved, and he danced, and the music. Yeah. And oh, the, yeah. I think nobody was safe. He's lighting shit on fire, yeah. and then, oh, and he's marrying his... Fourteen-year-old, thir- right? His thirteen, fourteen-year-old cousin, oh. and I think it was like his cousin was his bass player, and it was his daughter. So he married his bass player's fourteen-year-old daughter. That's his cousin. Let's talk about one of the good guys of rock and roll. Let's do it. One of the greatest guys of rock and roll. One of the most gentleman guys. Everybody has something great to talk about him. It's Carl Perkins. Yeah, absolutely. Carl Perkins is one of a kind. He was such a gentleman. If you never heard of Carl Perkins, he was the original. We'll call him a picker. Guitar picker, which is basically the guitar solo. Carl Perkins totally influenced a bunch of guys from the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Do we have any of his music? Somehow? Yeah, so there's a there's a little song that he wrote that many of us may have heard yes. of before that people may not know it's his. Even the little pauses he does. It's a different song than he did to Elvis. I love rockabilly music. I just think it's so cool. And he's the king of rockabilly music. Sure. Uh, There's a great story about how he came up with blue suede shoes. Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash were standing at a bar. And there was a couple dancing. And they're watching this couple dance. And the... The guy jumps back, says, baby, stop stepping on my suede. And Johnny Cash says to Carl Perkins, you should write a song called Blue Suede Shoes. Oh, really? How, yeah. how much of the music world is just predicated on just fuck all luck? Uh, you know, it, like, it is. It's, that, that, it's all that, luck. That Lennon and McCartney just happened to grow up in the same town. That They just happened to be in that bar, and that it's dude perfect timing. stepped on the shoe. Carl Perkins could have been getting a drink and looking the other Not way. or noticing what was going just, on. And it's just, that's a huge fucking song. And Good to have Johnny Warp. Cash stand there and tell you, hey, you should write a song. Exactly. Yeah. Every one of these big musicians, I tried to figure out how do they how did they get into Sun Records? Because yeah. there's so many of these guys that yeah. are all in the same place at the same time. And it's just, this isn't happening anywhere else in the country. Mm. But I I think it was because where they were like in the south rock and roll had this country feel to it you know it had to be in the south especially with that song you can hear the western i mean country western music turns into rockabilly mm-hmm. and then it blends in with the blues and it gives us rock and yeah. roll music he was kind of famous doing rockabilly stuff all around the south and he heard elvis 
he heard Blue Moon of Kentucky on the yeah. radio, mm-hmm. and he said, Sam Phillips gets what I'm trying to do with sure. Rockabilly music. I need to be on that yeah, guy's I'm record gonna label. Go knock on I'm, gonna, I'm going to him. Yeah. Right. It's the musical. Look, he's the Samuel L. Jackson, he, and these are the musical Avengers all coming together. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm building a team. Yeah. How much influence do you think Sam had over the artists? A lot. I think he guided them. Mm-hmm. He didn't have influence on but he tried to guide them mm-hmm. in a direction that he heard. Would you call him the first producer? Because back then there was He's no the such thing. He's the godfather of producing. Yeah. Definitely. Like, he, he persuaded artists. Like, oh, it doesn't sound this like this well, way. You should do it like this way, John. Like, mm-hmm. rather than this way. His techniques were were groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Later on in the next half of the show, I'll get into how yeah. he, how he yeah, recorded. Like about that. Yeah. He was... The chaos. He saw the the music in the chaos. Yeah. Carl Perkins, too, was he joins the label right as Elvis is leaving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when Elvis leaves, and we'll talk a lot about Elvis, Sam Phillips then turns to Carl Perkins and goes like, you're my guy. And they said, like, I guess at some point they were both on the label together. And Sam Phillips bet them that whichever one of you sells a million records first, Mm -hmm. I'll buy you a new car. Mm -hmm. And Elvis leaves. Sam Phillips and Carl Perkins do Blue Suede Shoes. And that becomes the first major, major hit for Sun Records. And Carl Perkins gets the car. Later on, Elvis, they were really trying to make Elvis record that song. And obviously, Elvis did record Blue Suede Shoes. But he was such good friends with Carl. He waited for Blue Suede Shoes to drop off the countdown. was probably a long part of my life till I realized that that version that we just played wasn't Elvis. Really? Really. I think it sounds so much like him. Well, it, there's a pause. There's a different kind of pause going on it. The one for the money. Ba-bum-bum. Two for the show. Ba-bum-bum. Elvis is a one for the money, a two for the show. That identifies that song as an Elvis Presley song. Yeah. Like, it's just like, even though he sold a million copies of it, that's an Elvis tune. The one you know. thing you can't compare to Elvis that Carl Perkins was was a fucking amazing guitar player. Yeah. If you go on YouTube, you'll you'll see like rock rock and roll royalty bow down to this man. I've seen footage with Eric Clapton, George Harrison, Ringo Starr all jamming with him at once, and Carl Perkins looking at them like like they're his kids. Oh really? Oh yeah. He's, he's like, man, these kids could play the guitar. I mean, watch out. George, play play a lick, George. Like he's so like confident. What year, what year was that? Do you think that in they recorded this in the seventies? So they're still young. So they were kids. Well, so. he looks. Yeah. You know, yeah. he he looks at them as kids. Yeah. You know, I, I watched something else that Paul McCartney was like bow downing sure. to to Carl Parkins, being like, you know, we really had a hard time understanding how you made those notes. He's like, oh, Paul, I would have showed you if I was sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> he seems like a very kind man. He was a very Good man. He yeah. He had the best attitude in rock and roll I've ever yeah. seen. Yeah. I have a in my notes a quote from Paul McCartney. He said, "If there were no Carl Perkins, there's no Beatles." Sure. No. I think anybody t- that took mostly influence was George Harrison. Absolutely. You hear George you Harrison's hear playing, you, and you listen to to Carl Perkins. They just have that picking sound. Like I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure he's number one. Like influence over George Harrison, you like you listen oh, to those early yeah. Beatles things, like the way that he, even his finger styling that George used was totally Carl Perkins. And Carl Perkins is another guy that again is is kind of fading out of yeah, music. forgetting about him. Everybody yeah. listen to Carl Perkins. Get back and get him back. Get back and back shine. Go, go listen. Get yeah. get off your ass and go listen to yeah. some rockabilly get your music. Kids, an instrument, drums, guitar. It doesn't matter. Put some of this rockabilly stuff on. And almost all of this music is just fun. 
Yeah, you that's know, all it's it was. Not, it's not heavy. We're not talking about politics yet, and no. we're not bitching about our parents and everything. It no. is just about no, having a good it time. Was, it was just like you said. It was all a good time. There was blues playing. But there was no like tone of sadness on any Sun Records. That just, those prisoners guys that were all locked up. They were even sound like angels. <laughs> right, that guy. That guy raped six people, and he sounds like he's having a good time. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm serving a hundred years in prison for killing a motherfucker, and I'm having and number I'm, one. I'm, you can't even go out to a bar and tell some girl like, "Hey, you hear that's me." You're like, you got to tell your cellmate. Right. What do you? Yeah. But I got a single. Right. I made rock and roll. Right here. Um. Another person I, I think we should touch on like really quickly. He's not. He doesn't have a huge influence in Sun Records. Is Roy Orbison? Ugh, Another. Uh, he's the best, dude. He's the. He's one of the greatest. He, he, no, no, no. But he wasn't on the label very long. No, oh, no. he got no. Dis- right. yeah. He got discovered by by Sun, and then yeah, he, he, he got he comes out. on. Yeah, he was playing in Texas. He was kind of big, and he was playing in uh, a, a gig in Odessa, Texas. And Elvis and Johnny Cash come through town mm-hmm. playing for Sun Records, and uh, Roy Orbison goes up to Johnny Cash and says, "Hey." How do you get advice to get a record label? John tells him to go talk to Sam Phillips. Sure. Roy Orbison does, and Sam Phillips is like, Johnny Cash doesn't run my my record level, label boy. <laughs> he doesn't say who's in my bands. Uh, he's on the, the record label for a couple years, like four years, and he gets really frustrated. He doesn't think Son's paying attention to him, and he splits. Sure. Do you um, have anything I Roy? do. I have two songs to play by him. Are you a big fan of Roy Orbison? I love Roy Orbison. I, I, never, I don't think I've ever asked you that, but it, you seem like... I, again, yeah, just, you seem like it. Yeah. The nerdy, the, yeah. the coolness, That's the so I think he's, yeah. he's fantastic. He's one of the greatest voices in rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the song that became a hit for him. It's called Ooby Dooby. Oh, yeah. He sounds like Elvis. But this was kind of a sexual type yeah. and, song, and, wasn't it? Same two words over and over it's and over catchy. again. It's catchy. It's catchy. Yeah, wow, it sounds like, like Elvis. Yeah. And then here's another this song is called Domino that I'd never heard no, of until I started great song. Until I started researching for yeah, this song this, this is a episode. Song. I was gonna bring this song up too. That's just a cool that's a cool lick. But listen to that. The spoon the only thing I have a problem with this song is the spoons. It's on top of this guitar. You hear that click click click? They're spoons. It doesn't it's even sound like Roy Orbison. Like the yeah. voice sounds a little different to me. But Man, is he, that, is, he is a rock roller. And that was recorded on Sun, on Sun yeah, Records. Yeah, that's a Sun Records song. As we were just playing that couple clip, Ryan, you were just moving your hand like you had a drumstick in your hand. Like you're, you're moving no, along I, with the... I hear the clicking of it. They're spoons. You're yeah. moving along with the sound, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can't help it. I hear music, I move. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's it. I said he 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 just kind of like ducks into the story and then he ducks out. He but, wasn't like a huge Sun Records. You know, obviously became yeah. enormous. Yeah. If you don't know anything about Roy Orbison, he recorded Pretty Woman. He was also one of the Traveling Wilburys. Fantastic yeah. in the Traveling Wilburys. Absolutely. He was a strange guy. He was he was definitely a different kind of dude. He had a lot of tragedy in his sure. life. Yeah. His wife. Died. His wife died. And his son fire. died in a yeah. fire. Yeah. That's yeah. why he wore all black. And, yeah. yeah. He had the big nerdy glasses, and he... You know why he wore those glasses? He broke his glasses at at a gig. So the only... It were prescription glasses. So he broke the glasses, so he had a pair of prescription sunglasses. So the next day, he was leaving for England. So he didn't have time to go out and buy another pair of prescription glasses. So he just had to roll with these sunglasses. He got so many compliments on his 
the glasses. Hmm. It became his trademark. And a lot of people say, you know why he wears the sunglasses? Because he cries every time he, he totally. sings. His you know. songs are crying. Yeah. I'm crying. Yeah, the, the emotion in his in yeah. his voice and his songs. And he but when he died, he was like he was having dinner at his mom's house and he, he was only, had a he had a heart attack. He was he only sixty two, sixty three. Yeah. But uh, Tom Petty said, you know, when he died he got to do the, the Wilbury thing and uh, he they were just so happy. He went on top. He went they out went on top. On top and, uh, yeah, uh, it was I, like his, it was the resurgence of his career. Yeah, and he's and Tom wrote that song for him. Um you got it. Yeah, you got it. And he was just so happy to be just, and not soon after that, you know, that was yeah. a big song. Yeah. That was yeah. a huge, so big song. I didn't song. know Tom Petty wrote that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's, that's a, a great that's a be- song. It's just a beautiful yeah. song. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's to I go. I wouldn't even try to do the, the voice. But, but, to, but to be a recording artist for most of your life and to go out number one. Yeah. Is pretty yeah pretty yeah. amazing. So we covered most of the people. We got a couple really big names that guys. have not yeah. ducked into this story yet. I have a story about a, a song that turned into a lawsuit with Sam Phillips that became like a, a really big deal. That's a big impact on this. And then we got some other some goodies that we're going to talk about later in the Goody show. Goody. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to talk so, about a little bit about the recording process. Sam yeah, did. So we've been nerding out a lot, but we haven't talked a whole lot about Sam Phillips, the sound guy, and the things that he did that were. Revolutionary to music. So let's take a, a little commercial break. Uh, give us all a chance to uh, regroup. regroup, sort our notes, and we'll be back. This episode of the Prisoners of Rock and Roll is brought to you by McCusker's Tavern, located at 17th and Shunk Streets in South Philadelphia. McCusker's Tavern has been in business for more than 50 years, making it the oldest bar west of Broad Street and a city known for its neighborhood watering holes. Minutes from the sports stadium, McCusker's is a great place to stop in for a few beers before or after a game or a concert. There's a reason why everyone from Philadelphia Magazine to Playboy have ranked it as one of the best dive bars in the city. Music is such an important part of McCusker's Tavern that we're actually recording this episode from there right now. They're currently closed due to the pandemic, but miss everyone and hope to see them soon. In the meantime, check them out on Facebook. That's McCusker's Tavern. All right, we're back from a commercial break. We're all ready to rock and roll. We're ready to bring it home. So we got a couple artists we need to talk about still. There's two big players in the Sun Records story who have not yet entered the stage, and let's get them on the field. I just crossed like 15 metaphors at the same time. (laughs) But the two big ones are the king of rock and roll and the man in black. And let's start with the king. Let's kind of tell the story a little bit about how he comes into Sun Records. Now, when they gave Elvis the title of the king of rock and roll, Jerry Lee Lewis did not like that at all. No, I can't imagine. Jerry Lee Lewis drove over to, to Graceland <laughs> with a gun and it was firing up in the, in the air. Like, Elvis, come out here. I'm the king of rock and roll. I'm the king. Can you imagine? Elvis Elvis probably wasn't even home. And Jerry Lee Lewis is fighting with <laughs> Chuck Berry and he's fighting with uh, Elvis. And, and meanwhile, like, I saw that Carl Perkins is called the king of rockabilly. You never heard. You never heard him saying, like, oh, I'm going to pick up the prisoners and drop them off of your house and have them kill, kill you. <laughs> so let's get Elvis into this. So The king. Sun Records is open. They're recording anybody, you know, anybody, anytime, anywhere. No. And Elvis walks in and pays $3.98 to record two songs as a gift for his mom. Now, do you believe the myth of that Elvis story? Because I, I, I don't know if I honestly What's do. What's the myth? That here's this nice boy 
we we discovered this nice boy who came in and wanted to record an album for his mother for his birthday. This nice, wholesome, yes, some, yes, sir, no, sir, which he was a very, very pretty, pretty right on though, dude. You know, we've all been to Memphis, and for the impression that I got is that Elvis was already like a local star. Like he was sell out the high school gymnasium before. He oh, went yeah. to the sun. Yeah, he was totally like a neighborhood like yeah. star. Yeah, so they I don't, know, think, they yeah, knew, I don't um, think he was like a like yeah. a hayseed. It but wasn't the, like me going into like yeah. the No, he played the school talent show. Yeah. And he and he, and he was like a, a heartthrob to the girls at the school. But for him to walk in the sun and nobody, not they didn't know who he was. No. Uh, he, they knew who he was. You think right when he walked in the, the sun like came down on him and Well that's what I think how a lot of people perceive that here's this nice boy who who just wanted to make his mom a, a record. You know? I mean the Hey don't well, let the story don't let the truth get away in a good okay. story, man. Well the story is I, why am I reading my notes? You like yeah. Ryan's wearing, wearing an Elvis shirt. You guys both have Elvis tattoos. You tell this story because you guys know it off the top of your hands. I don't. Why did I write this down? We're raised on it, man. Well, right. You guys know it. Elvis walked in the Sun Records one day, wanted to make a record for his mom. The one song that he had was called "My Happiness." Now everybody thinks that Sam Phillips discovered Elvis, and it wasn't. It was his secretary, Marion Kensinger. She was the one that. Recorded Elvis first. She showed the record to Sam Phillips. Sam didn't like it at first. Yeah. Sam thought it was garbage. It wasn't anything he was looking for. A little bit later on, Sam was like, if somebody could find me a white boy that could sing the rhythm and blues like these other acts That are, stuff he wanted to capture please, and bring please, on to somebody else. Please send them to me. And Marion was like, well, how about the boy with the sideburns that were here? <laughs> I guess at that point, Sam Phillips realizes he had this vision that he wanted to bring this music from Beale Street and in Alabama to the people. And he realized that 1950s America is probably not down for that yet. Not no. yet, no. So no. he had something marketable. Some other of the black artists, the really early ones, criticized Sam Phillips, saying that he kind of turned his back on them. Like Ike Turner said it at some point too that that they, yeah, but like like you know he thinks he did everything yeah yeah right, right. yeah he's, he's right. a successful maniac. But is it is it not true though? Oh no, I think it's abs- absolutely I, I, true. I, I mean, yeah. and then they move away. Yeah. The the record label moves away from all that blues music into sure. Once they get these artists that we've been talking yeah. about, you know, Elvis, just like Johnny Cash, it point you pointed out to me earlier, Bruce that. They didn't use a drummer. What was the what was the information that you gave me on that? Yeah. Why didn't they have a drummer? So I'll play the example of it for Johnny Cash. But Johnny Cash doesn't have a um, a drummer in these early songs. And it was uh, because the Grand Old Opry didn't allow drums on the stage, and Johnny Cash didn't want to get uh, shunned by the Grand Old Opry Not because yet. that that is the. <laughs> You know, he waited a little while for that to happen. Yeah, so the Grand Ole Opry started in the 1920s, and they didn't have a drum set on stage until the mid-70s. So, awesome. And I, I have some stuff on how he replicated that dr- a drum sound without having a drum. But yeah, well, we were shooting a shit about that before when we were setting up all of our equipment, and but I mentioned Johnny Cash didn't have a drum, and then Ryan, you said, that, oh yeah, well, Elvis didn't have that in his early stuff either. No, Elvis, on all the Sun records, Elvis recorded, he didn't have any drums on it and i never noticed it until you said something bruce and then i mean doug were talking about the rhythm on the albums and doug was like it's the slap bass yeah it's giving it the rhythm and i that didn't really necessarily recognize that there was no drums on there because i 
I don't know why I want to later on. That. Later on, like you know, Hound Dog. Sure, and sure. Everything the original recordings, yeah. But uh, with the Grand Ole Opry, didn't Elvis play the Grand Ole Opry before he broke ground in America? And the Grand Ole Opry told him, like, you'll never make it in country music. I guess they use country music. You'll never make it. I'm oh, pr- pretty the, sure the Grand Ole Opry was basically at first was a local show. Yeah, it was local talent. Elvis was on the local circuit by himself, and that's when he was on the Opry. And he, they were like, no, you're never going to make it. Yeah. But the Opry didn't have, like, amplification or anything like that. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. Yeah. You know? And, well, what was the get? He was, like, you know, he was playing the style of – I'm sure he did some – country standards when he was there i'm not really sure what he played he was when he was on there that, but he mm-hmm. was on that thing the louisiana hayride, the hayride. Yeah, yeah that he was kind of torn around mm-hmm. beforehand i think that was before sun records i'm not as i'm not as up on my elvis history as you yeah. guys are well it was elvis and sun doing that whole circuit like the um the circus okay. circuit yeah. yeah like the carnival circuit yeah mm-hmm. okay um and then that's when corner Colonel Parker came in and brought him the, to RCA Records. So, you know, he had little success, local success. Elvis had local mm. success with his son recordings. And it wasn't until the Colonel brought him the RCA to make Hound Dog and all those songs. Then that's when he became Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. Now, when RCA bought Elvis, do you know what rca bought elvis for yeah what was it bruce was, was it like thirty five thousand dollars or something like it that? it was exactly thirty five thousand dollars so it was the equivalency of like half a million dollars back then it's a, it's yeah, a lot of money they asked sam does he regret you know selling elvis's contract and he was like no because i could never do what the colonel did for elvis mm-hmm. you know, or the, rca also an rca to bring him to that level yeah the money that elvis sold for that's the money that he got Jerry Lee Lewis to record and like and he, Roy Orbison and he started adding to his own studio like he said he used that Elvis money to move Sun forward going back to Chess Records rather than selling all this music to Chess and these artists and whatever he s- decided like well this is going to be my jump off point to become a major record label their label I always if you know the Sun Records label you you know what I'm talking about sure. It's that yellow label with the chicken on it. Sam Phillips' buddy from high school designed that. The chicken on there, or is it a rooster? Bruce, you're... It's you're, a rooster. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was, it's a rooster. How dare you? Yes. The rooster... <laughs> you that's call yourself the, a socialite? <laughs> <laughs> well, the rooster on there was added because of the diner next door. They had a rooster on their thing, and they were there for so... They were there like 24-7 eating there they're like oh we're gonna i'm gonna put this on the for mascot backing up a, a little bit with elvis so he he does that recording for his mom marion sees something in him that sam phillips doesn't he comes back a year later and he wants to impress sam phillips and he's just doing a bunch of rant like country songs yeah, and, and he's still like i don't get it what this kid's trying to do you know and then he dicking around he's elvis, dicking around right and he plays this Yeah, he stopped dead in his tracks. And Sam yeah. Phillips goes, holy shit, what is it? And it, yeah. This is the future. It all falls into place. Can you imagine? And it's a cover by an Arthur Crudrip song that nobody knows. I didn't know that. Sam Phillips, they cut the song, they record it, 
Sam Phillips runs to a buddy of his. Dewey Phillips. Uh, Dewey Phillips. No relation. No relation, but as crazy as, as he was. Yeah. Gives him the song. Dewey Phillips then plays it 14 times in a row. Oh, really? Like 14 times oh. over three hours on the radio. Dewey was a man, And man. all these people start calling. So if you've been to Sun Records, that's like the, um, there's a little replica of his DJ booth and there's all like the records are all smashed yes. on the floor because he would <laughs> oh, play yeah. something he didn't yeah. like. Yeah. He would take oh, it off the turntable right. yeah. and he would throw yeah. it against yeah, yeah. the wall and that's break right. it. Yeah. He, he was like that original wild man yeah. DJ. Yeah. He, he sounds like a like an auctioneer. You can hear stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You can find crazy. recording. I'm Rec- crazy and I'm good. Yeah. Super southern accent. Uh-huh. He's talking all the twang and the slang yeah. and you can't understand it. But he plays the song like 14 times in a couple of hours and everyone's calling in Yeah, and then off we go with did, Elvis. Did he say, like, this is the future of music? Did well, he recognize he, it? He, yeah, totally. That's why he played it so many times in a row. I mean, he totally saw the future of everything right there. What he did see is the past going past him and said, this is definitely the future. Everything in music changes there. Like that moment where that dude is playing that on the radio and is blowing up so hard. It's like Rock the, and roll has changed forever. It's like the equivalent of when everybody discovered nirvana i was just gonna yeah. say that like there do you think that it was like that same yes. feeling the first time you heard that like this just changed everything there, there was like a, i think it was like time life magazine or something came out one of those like coffee table books it was like the 500 greatest moments in the history of the world yeah and sam phillips discovering elvis Absolutely. was in front of the invention of the calendar <laughs> god bless rock and roll yeah um, amen and then elvis is on for a couple years and Sam Phillips starts having financial problems, and he sells Elvis's contract to RCA Records for $35,000. He was in a tough spot financially due to a lawsuit, which I'll, yeah. we'll talk about mm-hmm. after we're done with Elvis and Johnny Cash. And when Elvis leaves, Sam Phillips takes that $35,000, he uses it to pay his bills, and he uses the rest of the money to fund promoting Blue Suede Shoes by... <sighs> Carl Perkins, what a great, yeah, that's, which becomes, that. that's a, which becomes a huge hit. That's fantastic. And then he sells the record label and uses the money to invest in the holiday. Inn. That's so. fantastic. Uh, Sam Phillips said when he met Elvis, sorry, he never met a most insecure person in his life than Elvis Presley because he was just not knowing what he had. He wouldn't stop messing with his hair. He's just very nervous guy during that whole session of that recording. Well, if the only thing you want to do is make records and here's your chance you yeah. know you you no probably, pressure you, you probably get a little yeah no pressure yeah no pressure come on kids show me what you do good all right let's geek out a little bit here guys i did a little research on how sam phillips came up with that echo in the vocals you know what i'm talking about there's like a slight little echo going through the vocals and it's famous it's called the slap back echo bruce do we have something from jerry lee lewis on there yeah, what's Jerry Lee Lewis song? Uh, let's put a whole lot of shaking going on. Maybe you can explain the what you're what you're hearing here. Listen to the vocals, the echo. Yeah, yeah, I hear it. That is a famous Sun Records echo. So, is there an Elvis song too that we could play as an example of that too? You know, what? there's a great Elvis song that has example of the. The Echo. It's Blue Moon, Kentucky. Can you bring that up? Yeah, that was the B-side for uh, That's All Right, Mama, if I if I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah. Listen to the vocals. Keep shining bright. Blue moon, keep on shining bright. She comes to print and be back on my favorite tonight. Blue moon, keep shining bright. I say blue moon, I've got to get 
That probably blew people's minds when they heard that for the first time. Well, especially blew the minds of RCA when Elvis when Elvis left Sun Records. RCA had a hell of a time reproducing that sound, and they tried so many different things. But I'm going to tell you how Sam Phillips did it. So wait, so when they bought Elvis, they thought they were getting this like package of all yeah. these <laughs> sound effects. This is yeah. what it sounds like. And Elvis, Elvis either didn't know how to do it or didn't tell them how to do it. I heard that RCA, like they couldn't figure it out, so then they put Elvis in a big empty hallway to try uh. to capture the echoing. And Sam Phillips didn't do that because we just no. talked about how Sun Records was... 18 by 30 feet. It's like yeah. you just paid enough money just for the singing Elvis. So RCA couldn't figure out how to replicate that song. So they, Elvis got huge with that echo. RCA thought they were getting it. They tried recording a couple songs. They couldn't figure out how to do it. And I think the story goes that they asked Elvis how do you do it. And Elvis he had wouldn't no tell idea. Him. Yeah, so Elvis. How, yeah. So what did what did Sam Phillips do that made that sound? Right, because it's like 1950. This is 19, like mid-1950s. Well, okay, what Sam did was he had six microphones. He used four of them on the band and two of them on Elvis. He had two microphones set up for the same vocal, one of them going through one tape machine at real time, the other microphone going to another tape machine and an echo chamber. But the tape machine was going slower than the other tape recorder. So what he did was he glued it together and made an echo. So he played them simultaneously? Yes, he played but them together. But one was a little yeah. bit behind. Yeah. One was a little bit behind and used an echo chamber using two different recording machines. And he was using the famous microphone, the, the Elvis famous microphone. Yeah. He was using two of them. RCA couldn't figure it out, and they tried to do everything they could, and Elvis would not tell them. He was sticking to his guns with they're not his the boy. Old, they're not in the good old boy club. They totally not. Yeah. But I think it's kind of brilliant how Sam did that. How do you think he came up with that? I don't know. Just tinker with sound and just... Maybe be the, the best at his craft. I think he thought these white boys needed some some more sure. oomph to sure. their vocal and how he was going to show off the song. And for like a major company like RCA at that time, not knowing how some guy just did this in a broom closet. Basically, the room is very small. Like it shouldn't have been a recording studio. To pull that off is ingenious. Yeah, I, And I never even thought of it that way that. A lot of these distortions, we talked about the fuzzy guitar on Rocket 88 and how they fell into that kind of by mistake. Yeah. Like they were just trying to Accents patch happen. something together. Yeah. But this is something that Sam Phillips was like, you know what this needs? It needs echo. Is that the first instance of like echo on vocals? Like, yeah, like reverb? Right. Like, like, reverb? So, like yeah. so something was in that dude's head that he's like, this is what this needs. Man, he must have been But it's something person. that's so common in recording now. It's something so simple was so hard to do back then. It's simple now, it's standard. But to come up with that idea, I read something like Sam would just hear things in his head. Again, he had some mental illness and he would argue with himself and just lose sleep over this thing because he's a pure artist. Sam Phil's an absolute pure artist yeah. just as much as a person singing the thing. He's the yeah. first producer. Yeah. Just arguing with yourself and being haunted by this and he probably spent hours and hours and hours awake and just try to figure out how to do this he was a perfectionist though sure he used um a few different kind of mics also he used the rca 77dx and he also used the rca 44bx hmm. one of the one of the other microphones he used was called the altec pencil mic and it looked like a coke bottle yeah he used a few of them um but he would use these microphones and plug them into an RCA 76D broadcasting mix console. Um, he used magnetic tape, which was brand new at the time. Sure, that's, yeah. 
um, made it easier on the sound. He was the first tech nerd in recording. Yeah. Because yeah. you talked about earlier that he had mobile recording equipment, which is, for us, it sounds, you know, we have something in front of us that we're recording this on. It's the size of a paperback book. This is 1950. Sure. Imagine the trial and error. Imagine everything that he, he had to get to that point to find that. Just the hours. But he's doing that. And he's doing it while he's recording funerals and shit sure. to keep the lights yeah. on. And he's thinking, yeah. how yeah. am I going to make this rock? Right. Yeah. He's doing those radio gigs on the side still, and he's doing anything to make ends meet just to keep funneling it into yeah. this business. Yeah. And, and being he's still innovating. Top of it. Yeah. And being creator. And that yeah. Elvis, the like the Elvis Mike you just mentioned, the Shure 55, mm-hmm. like you can still buy that. They sure. still yeah. make them. Or you just mentioned yeah. the Altec. That brand is still around. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the Altecs were 350s. But yeah, you would use two of these tape recorders to make this echo. And they're still there. There's a recording. The things that he recorded on, they're still there. It's sun. Yeah, they're modified. Oh, the equipment and, yeah, they're and modified stuff, yeah. a little bit, but they're still there. Whatever Sam Phillips did was groundbreaking in recording, and nobody knew how to do it. It's amazing. Like I'm not the biggest guy when it comes to recording, but you know, it's the beginning of the recording. It's the it's it's standard these days. But when something's not standard and you have to invent it, it's absolute genius. You know, amazing. something that becomes a standard. In recording. Sam was a visionary. It's completely amazing. Like, I didn't think about it until we were just, until Ryan was explaining we're having a conversation. And just to sit back and just like, wow, everything that's used today. And you could do that at home. Like, it's amazing what you can do at home now. And it all started with this one guy with yeah. a vision. And it, like, a vision that he had in his head that, that haunted him. Yeah. He had to get it together. That thing he had to do with the Echo was intentional. It yes. wasn't yeah. something he just kind of fell into. He had a vision, and then he had to figure out how to deliver on that vision with 1954 yeah. technology. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been some most simpler thing if he just fell into that by accident. Some of the most brilliant things happen by accident. And right. I hope that was an accident. I hope he, he just like was haunted by it and just was just a pure artist in his craft. Maybe he heard the echoes in his head. I think he did. And he heard Elvis yeah. and he was like, man, a little echo reverb would go so far with his voice his voice is just amazing also he's is the perfect the but, perfect combination but he did it also with jerry lee you yeah. hear some of jerry lee's songs have the echo yeah. on it yeah and it makes the song did he do it with elvis before he did it with jerry yeah i mean yeah. elvis was yeah. before jerry yeah but he didn't he didn't use the echo on everything so that's a great point with the echo that oh i have this new thing this novel thing i'm gonna throw it on Every single everything. track we did. I'm going to make everything echo. Yeah. But don't you think like a lot of people copied that as time went on, like especially in the 50s, because that's like the 50s sound that echo. You, you go into like Run Around Sue and other songs that came out like 10 years, like, you know, within that same timeline. You, you just think about it. Uh, I, I never even thought of this now as like a signature you, sound. And I'm going to hear it. And I'm going to go home and yeah. I'm going to listen to I, all this old 50s music. I think it's the sound of the 50s. I think he created the sound of the 50s. You know, it was a standard. All of our eyes are like really big right now. And we were like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that we all didn't put this all back to Sam Phillips. We were going to Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash also used the Echo. Yeah, we haven't introduced him to the story yet. We'll get to him next. But let's play a couple seconds of Folsom Prison Blues. I prefer the live version. But the studio version, you can hear it too. I hear the train a coming. It's rolling around the bend. It's really and subtle. I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. He like perfected it by then. Hmm. And time keeps yeah, it's not overdone. On. Yeah, it's had you not even said that, 
I don't even think I ever. I've I, never even noticed it. I think that is the trademark of Sun Records. Mm-hmm. That echoing and RCA couldn't figure it out. A lot of people couldn't figure it out. I love that era of music, and I love the stuff that came out of Sun Records. And it doesn't matter who it is. And I never put my finger on what about it that I really like. And I always thought it was maybe the crossover with rockabilly and the stand-up bass and everything. I think it's that sound. Sure. Yeah. And That's I what never really it. thought Absolutely. about it. Like, there's a Sun record Sam Phillips sound that I have never put my finger on until you just walked us through it. Yeah. I just, it's something that I've noticed in the last two weeks. It's something I really paid attention to. I'm blown away. It's the sound of the 50s. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like everybody, a, you just, you just copied it. Yeah. It's like an epiphany. Yeah. I'm like, shit, I'm yeah. going to listen to so much stuff driving home now. Yeah, yeah. Ryan McCusker's right again. Right. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about Johnny Cash. All I know right, so you love him. I, I love I, him too, but you really love yeah. him. Yeah, I, I love the man in black. So so let's get Johnny Cash into the story. I think he's the last major artist. I only have three bullet points on okay. Johnny Cash. So much like what I said, you guys could talk about Elvis. So Fire off. Johnny Cash was in the military. He got out of the military. He moves into Memphis, Tennessee, 1954. He's working as an appliance salesman. He had been kind of jerking around with playing music for a long time. And he auditions for Sun Records. And he bombs. He comes in and decides he's going to play some gospel music. He grew up in a very religious household. And Sam Phillips says, hey, come back when you have something good to sing. And he came back and he sang the song, Hey Porter. And Sam Phillips signed him. And he just goes on to have a string of hits for Sun Records. And the one song I wanted to talk about a little bit without getting too much into Johnny Cash was Walk the Line. And I, we, we mentioned earlier about how there's no uh, drums in Walk the Line. Yeah, it's all rhythm off yeah, the bass and the but guitar. So if you hear that... Hear that clicking? You, you th- Well, one, it, it sounds like a train track. It sounds like a snare drum. Yeah, and it sounds like a snare drum, or um, somebody else said it sounds like a maraca, yeah. which as much as I love to think of Johnny Cash in all black, like playing the maraca. No, I'm kidding. With that. <laughs> um, no, but it, what it is, it's a piece of paper in his guitar. Yeah, they took an old guitar, they detuned the shit out of it. Mm. He stuck, the rumor is it was a $20 bill that he stuck between the strings and the fretboard and he's just going across back and forth because the Grand Old Opry wouldn't allow anybody to have a drum set and he was very reverential. He was still a country artist and he didn't want to get shunned by the Grand Old Opry. Wow. That's about it on Johnny Cash that he had like Hey Porter, Cry Cry Cry, Walk the Line, and Folsom we all Prison Blues. We've yeah. all seen the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's so like cliche to sit here and talk yeah. about Johnny. But, yeah. Uh, one thing, when Sam Phillips first met Johnny Cash. He was doing all the cup, the Christian songs or whatever. You know what Sam Phillips told him? Well, leave and come back when you got some devil on you. And then came back. Came back. He came back. With, with the with, devil and his fire. Put the devil in your songs. Earlier in the podcast, I talked about, do you think Sam Phillips had any producing or influence over any of his artists? He convinced Johnny Cash to speed up Folsom yeah. Prison Blues and walk the line. And John was just like not having it. Very like low tempo song. And it was, it's not the song that we, we love today. No, he wanted him to rock. Yeah. And yeah. Sam had to convince him to kind of speed up the tempo a little bit. And John was like, he got done recording. He's like, yeah, we just wasted our time. And then he heard it on the radio. He's like, man, he was right. So Sam definitely had an influence. Like I was, I, I didn't know that up until recently. And I was like, wow, you know, he had a lot to do with a lot of people's sounds. So we've got all of the major players now that we've talked about with Sun Records. And then there's one magical night 
where four of them come together. And we've talked a couple times tonight about the heavens aligning and just like luck. Yeah. With a lot of this music stuff. And there's this one night was called the Million Dollar Quartet. December 4th, 1956. Now, how did it all start? Like, how did it start? Carl Perkins was recording new song with this unknown piano player and singer named Jerry Lee Lewis. Carl's Cadillac was parked outside, and Elvis was driving by to say, that's Carl. I'm going to stop in and say hello. Mm-hmm. So Elvis goes in, and they're in the middle of a recording session, and a few minutes later, Johnny Cash shows up from Christmas shopping. And Elvis was gone already. He was on RCA Records oh, at this yeah, point. Totally. Yeah, he's, he was he's in not on totally. anymore. Yeah. He just kind of ducks in to say hi. Yeah. So Sam gets them all together, and all of a sudden, they're jamming. And Sam wasn't a dumb person. He was like, I'm going to push record and see what happens. These guys were just sitting around having a good time. And Sam's like, look at what's happening right now. This is a major piece of history. I got to capture it. I got to get something from it. Do we have anything? Yeah. Here's Don't Be Cruel. By these four guys just jamming. This is stuff I really enjoy. They sound like they're having so much fun. This, you hear all the laughs in the background. It's Christmas time. Everybody's just happy to be there. There's another one on that playlist, if you look. It's yeah, called sure. The Saints Are Marching In. That really shows off all of them together. Play that. When the saints go marching in Jerry Lee playing the piano. Obviously, Elvis singing. Well, when the saints go marching in, when the go marching in, so much fun. Can you imagine? Sam Phillips is sitting there and sees the dollar signs and says million dollar quartet. When did, like, I know this, this recording has been around for a while now, but when was it released? It was released. It was recent, like yeah. in the last 20 years. Yeah. So it wasn't yeah. released it was when these guys were all kind of like, well, you know, Rice Gazelle's with RCA. Well, it was always a, a rumor. It was always something that was a legend. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until maybe about... 20 years ago, these recordings came out, but there's a brand new version of the recordings came out recently, and it's on Spotify now, and you could check it out. It's really great, great quality. Yeah, these some, songs. Is it the same recording that, just, that we just listened to? It's the same recording I did, but they just cleaned it all up. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of it is them just kind of goofing off yeah. and sure. talking. And that's great. And like, that's it's sort of magic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and another thing that Sam Phillips did in addition to hit record was he called the press. Press, oh, sure. And yeah. then there's, there's that, that famous, famous picture. picture. Famous yeah. picture of the four of them around the piano, and the piano is still there, and you can go get your picture taken with it at, at the studio. Yeah, you kind of got to be really into music to appreciate that sure. because you're hearing a jam by yeah. four really famous people. It's not like when it came out; it almost sounded like that. Here's the long lost album that the four of these guys yeah. did. Well, this, this was such a big thing; they made a play out of it. Yeah, you know, it toured. I don't know if it was on Broadway, but it definitely toured. Million like, Dollar Quartet. These guys are just having a good time with that recording, and they're all friends, and you know they're all kind of from the same area. They all they all love Sam and you know, love where they came from. 
being in a band, people say playing in front of millions of people is where it's at, where the fun is at and everything like that. No, it's like magic like that happens yeah. spontaneously. It doesn't always happen. It doesn't happen ever. Maybe yeah. we, maybe to have it once. And that's what happened with the Million yeah. Dollar Quartet. Now, Jerry, he was just a session guy, so Great Balls of yeah. Fire wasn't out. No, yeah. um, Jerry Lee Lewis was basically a session player. He was playing for Carl mm-hmm. Parkins' album. He saw his opportunity to shine. He's like, yeah. I'm going to make these motherfuckers so th- rock. So I got one other quick story about a song called Bearcat by a guy named Rufus Thomas. You have no idea who he is. Nobody's ever heard of him. No. But the song Hound Dog, it wasn't an Elvis song. Elvis, It was a cover that yeah. Elvis did. Yeah. What happened was this guy, Rufus Thomas, made a song called Bearcat, which was a counter to Hound Dog. And to kind of set the stage, let me play 30 seconds of this. You ain't nothing but a bearcat. Wow. It's like the same song. It's the same goddamn yeah. song. So that song becomes a hit. So really? it was copyright. I guess copyright wasn't like really a big thing. Well, we're going to get to okay. that. Yeah. So Bearcat was the response to Hound Dog. It's written from the guy's perspective. Mm-hmm. The original Hound Dog is a woman Forward. saying, yeah. hey, yeah. You're, you're, you're a, a dog. dog. Yeah. Yeah. And it was by Big Mama Thornton. The record label that she was on owned the publishing rights to the song. So they sue Sun Records for copyright infringement, and they demand royalties and damages. damages. Sam Phillips fights it in court, and he loses. Of course. And now he has to pay 2% of the royalties for that whole song. Wow. He then goes into financial distress mm. from that lawsuit, mm. and that is why he sells Elvis's contract. Wow. Oh, wow. So it's did his song all, at least do well for him? It did. Yeah. It did, but he had, to, he had to pay back royalties. And then Elvis winds up going on to cover Hound Dog in 1956. Uh, ironic. And it continues this long trend of musicians covering wow. old R&B songs. So two other songs I wanted to touch base on, and then we can we can move on to the other part of our show. So we were talking about Johnny London being the very first artist they recorded. And I think it'd be cool to play it just because nobody knows who Johnny, Johnny London, London is. Yeah. There's that echo. This is before Coltrane. I just love that piano in the background. It's so laid back. And this has been completely forgotten. Sure. Like nobody, yeah, yeah. Unless you're diving into this you stuff like to dorks. make a yeah. right to make a podcast, yeah. you you don't remember this. So one other song that I had that I wanted to play a sample of was a guy named was by a guy named Jimmy DeBerry and it's a song called Time Has Made a Change and I only wanted to play it as an example because Sam Phillips talked a lot about how it was about capturing the way music made you feel and he said the worst thing a musician could try to do is be perfect yeah, technically yeah, yeah. and and a lot of these songs that we've played they were recorded in one take sure. like he was not down with doing things over and over and over again and i wanted to play this song as an example and i'm going to play it. it's about a minute and a half in but there's a point in this song where they're jamming and they're rocking 
and the phone rings in the background of Sun Studio, and you can hear it. And I guess the musician, like they finished the song, and he was like, "We have to redo it." The song, and he was like, "No, no, no, you are never going to capture that energy ever again. We leave yeah. it in." Yeah, it's hard to. So let me let me just play this. Hear it. The phone ringing? Yeah. I don't hear it. Can't hear it. I, really? We're deaf, dude. We've been listening. We've been playing too much rock and roll in our lives. But like one thing that Sam said, one of the worst words in the English dictionary was perfection. It's, He's very yeah. on about spontaneous yeah. mistakes, yeah. as they would call. Yeah. So that's Sun Records. That's the history of rock and roll at Sun Records. We we went all the way back yeah. to the very beginning, and we covered a lot of ground, man. Yeah. That was there's a little bit of pressure on this episode. There, um, doing the research because you know like, we're all nerds about this. Yeah. And we've all been there. I've been I there. Research for like two weeks. Yeah, it was so much fun. Well though, done, it was It was cool yeah. listening to stuff that yeah. I'd never heard of before. Yeah, a lot of work. It was a lot of work, yeah. but that's why we put in the work yeah. because we are. We do it for the listeners. We do it for everybody here. So we have a new segment we want to debut. So excited about this! That, that yes, Ryan came up with called the Electric Chair. Genius. Well, I was reading the Green Mile, and if you ever read that book, it's about a jail sentence. You know, and I figured we are the prisoners of rock and roll. Why don't we have an electric chair where we can kill songs that deserve to die? That deserve to die. Did this humanity do like songs humanity. that that you just hate that you can't even want to listen? You you hear it on the radio, you turn it off, and you get in a car accident because you hate it so much. It's hilarious. It's right. one, I've known you my whole life. It's one of the funniest things you ever said. So it was an absolutely brilliant idea, and we decided that Ryan should get to go first because it was his idea. So I'm going to shut up and get out of the way and let him send somebody the electric chair. For the first victim of the electric chair will be R.E.M. Losing My Religion. That song is must die. It's it's just, it's just a, a bad uh, song. Ever since it came out, uh, the first moment the it came out, horrible. the song, the band, uh, everything about the it, video, Stipes, like uh, that fucking song. Right. The this song, song has make, to be one of the worst songs ever written. Michael Stipes is the is the worst. Everything about the song, his whining. Oh, this whole oh, band let's, let's, let's listen share. to him for, It's so bad. Let's listen for a second. Oh, dude, do you have to listen anymore? Oh, I, I fucking hate him. Turn dude, him pull off. The, pull, the, pull the lever. Okay, now, here we go. R.E.M. We sentence you to death. May you rest in peace. <laughs> Thank God. You don't like the mandolin on that? Uh, dude, they're so they're, pompous. There's so much about that song that I hate that... I don't think our listeners' virgin ears are worth hearing. Yeah, I, I want to save it for them. Okay. They, if they hate it enough, agree with me. If not, email us. Tell us what you want to die next, and we'll try to get it on the next time. Or tell us, if you don't think that show, that song should go to the chair, let us know why, what your opinion is. Yeah. All right, cool. So do we have any listener feedback? I think there was a few things. We got a, I got a lot of people talking about the movie episode that we did. There was a lot of movies we missed. Doug, you weren't I here. I missed it. If I can go to like real fast into like my favorite movie story. Yeah, please. Music story that I looked really forward to telling. When we were kids, we saw Ferris Bueller's Day Off in this little theater down here called the colonial now it's, it's gone it's been gone for about 20 years now so we, uh being a kid the twist and shout 
part of that movie comes on. So it's a Friday night. The whole place is packed. The whole theater starts singing Twist and Shout. It's probably my second exposure to the Beatles next to A Hard Day's Night. It just had to be there. It was just so electrifying. And um, the one, it was a movie by itself. The woman who was the usher. The place was a fancy. We call it usher. No, it was just the old lady who worked there. Came in with a flashlight telling everybody to shut up. And the roof was coming down. And it was like my it was just my favorite movie moment ever. Okay. There was a few movies that were told to me that we forgot. Airheads was one of them. How did we forget about Airheads? I don't know. Another movie we forgot about was the Howard Stern movie. Yeah, Private Parts. That's on my list. Yeah, we, we totally forgot about that one. There was a few other ones Great on there. Great Balls of Fire. Great Balls of yeah. Fire. was. Yeah. Doug talked about that earlier. Did you guys but, talk about that thing you do? Nope. No, that's we didn't think about that thing we do. I can just See, that's talk. why you yeah. should have been here for yeah, it. I, yeah, that was on my that, That's just a great We'll circle back great. at episode yeah. 103. Yeah. We'll, we'll redo it. Uh, one of our listeners, Christina, she totally into what we were talking about, 80s movies, and how the election was going on last week, and everything was such a bummer. And she, you know, she took the opportunity to watch some of these old movies we were talking about. Yeah, you made the comment that we need a little bit of 80s in our lives right now. Yeah, we can use a little bit of 80s. Christina, thank you for your input. All right, cool. Wrapping up a little bit, we want to give a special shout out to Mike Cianci for being our assistant sound guy and helping us pull together our music playlist for Apple. Great job. Thank you, Michael. Apple Music. New thing, we're going to start having a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music to go with every episode so you can listen along to all the great music we're talking about. You can also follow us on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and any place where you listen. You can check us out on Facebook. We're always looking for feedback. You can always email us at prisonersofrockandroll at gmail.com, and you can check out our website at prisonersofrockandroll.com. So, as always, we're going to shut it down, and we'll figure out what we're going to do next, and we'll be back in two weeks. This was a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoyed the history lesson. Guys, have a great week. Peace out. Thank you.